Today's scripture comes from Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. God's word speaks to us. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is God's word to us. Hey, thanks, Kristen. Good to be with you guys this afternoon. Uh, My name's Dave. If you don't know me, I think I know most of you. One of the pastors here at the church. And before we jump in, a little family business one. One resource I want to highlight, one reminder, the first resource is this. This is called uh, the Gospel According to Mark Scripture Journal. And so it is the book that we're going to be going through for about the next year as a church. And what's cool is you can see it's got like a page of Scripture, a blank page. So I carry uh, one of these around with me when I'm, I'm, I'm back in uh, First and Second Samuel now, just because I'm about to turn 40, and uh, that seems fitting. Um, Charlie Hall told me I should read that since I'm about to turn 40. So I carry those around with me, um, and I carry this around uh, with me too often. So it's just a great way to take notes as you're doing devotional time or try to memorize scripture. If you're a guest today, this is one of the things we want to give you. And uh, as we go through this as a church, whether it's in your discipleship group, you're studying scripture together in community, uh, these are a really great tool. I would encourage you to go to crossway.com. They're like six bucks. There's also like multiple versions where you can get like an artsy-fartsy one, which is like, you know, fun too. Um, and uh, if you like to see pictures along with your scripture, that, that's cool. Um, or you can get the plain, boring black one. So, um, but if you're a guest, that's a gift. Um, and if you're a part of the church, it's a, a helpful tool. The other thing I want to remind you of is that starting next week, um, beginning in May, Uh, masks are not going to be required on Sundays. They're going to be optional. I forgot to say this last service. Yeah, you can can give that a a subtle golf clap. You guys, last week it was like freaking revival happened. There are people that stood up and turned a cartwheel, Um, but uh, which that that was fun. Um, But uh, all that to say, I I meant to say it last uh, last service. I'll say it to you guys. I do deeply appreciate, even if you haven't preferred that, um, just understanding it and coming and wearing masks throughout a Sunday. It has meant a lot to me as just one of the leaders of the church, and uh, I know that has not been the preference of many, and yet you've um, just really humbly done that, uh, and, and that's, that's a big deal, and um, it, it, it's, it's encouraging to me. So I love you guys much. Thank you. And even if you didn't, um, I still love you, and I, 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 you know, we'll leave it at that. So... Um, but next week, no masks. They're, they're certainly optional. You can wear them. That'll be totally cool. No one's going to make a big deal about that. If you don't want to, you don't have to. More importantly, um, we're going to change service times. And so we are going to go back to the 9 and the 11 the 5, not 10, 11, 30, and 5. So y'all need to show up like 30 minutes earlier. You'll be good. 
All right? Um, and uh, we'll, we'll go from there. So let me, let me pray for you. You pray for me, and then we're going to jump into Mark. So, Father, I thank you for my friends, and we thank you that as we always pray so often, and we're going to look at this scripture together as, you know, in this room, in this very moment. That's not an accident. That's your sovereign grace and providence. And, and so all that you have for us, we pray that we receive today. Help me help my friends um, and, and point them to the truth of the good news of who you are, Jesus. We pray this in your name. God's people said, amen. I want to read something to you written by a pastor named James Allen Francis, a uh, pastor of, you know, in the early um, 20th century in Los Angeles, and, and this is uh, beautiful. He wrote this. It's known as A Solitary Life. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant. He grew up in another village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He wrote a book. He never wrote a book, actually. He never wrote a book. He, he never held office. He never had a, a family or owned a home. He didn't go to college. He never even lived in a, a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place he was born. He did none of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. When he was 33, the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for his garments, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Twenty centuries have come and gone, and today he's the central figure of the human race. Again, Pastor James Allen Francis writes, I am well within the mark when I say that all the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that have ever sailed, all the parliaments that have ever sat, all the kings that have ever reigned, all put together have not affected the life of mankind on earth as much as that one solitary life. You might be looking at your calendar today, planning and, and looking what you have the week ahead. Perhaps you, you brought up your phone this morning to see what the date was. Every time we even look at the calendar, what we're reminded of is history hinges upon Jesus Christ. That 2,021 years ago, a man walked the face of the earth and something happened. In and through his ministry, there was good news that was proclaimed. He talked about a kingdom that had come in him. And, and he talked about, to anyone that would hear, he was going to die. But he promised he wasn't going to stay dead. And that's what happened. What he was saying all along. That he insisted upon dying. And he promised death wouldn't get the final word. He defeated death rose again, and that's why when you write the date, you write 2021, a man conquered death. It changed everything. 
We have to examine the life of Jesus. We have to look at him. We can't brush it aside. And we all come in here this morning, and some of us, I've got friends in here that have been following Jesus for decades and decades, and I have friends in here that are just exploring, like, uh, maybe you're back to church for the first time in a long time, or you're not so sure what you believe. But the, the proclamation and the truth of, of the gospel and Christianity as a whole is that what all of us need, no matter what we believe, no matter what we find ourselves in, no matter what burden we're carrying or what we're facing in life, we all need ultimately deep down the same thing. We need to, to, to know Jesus, to see him, to experience his love and his grace and his life. So with that in mind, that's what we're going to do for, for the next year as a church. We're going to, through the gospel of Mark, the good news of the gospel of Mark, look at who Jesus is and what it means for us, what it means for the entire world. And so we're going to begin at the, the beginning. And, and each gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of the, the, the stories of the good news of who Jesus is, they all, as we talked about last week, you know, show the ministry and the life and the resurrection of Jesus in a unique way, all working together, all telling the same story from different perspectives. And they all start in different ways. Matthew begins with a genealogy talking about how Jesus is a descendant of Abraham. He's the promised light of the world. Luke takes it back even further. After the baptism of Jesus, there's a genealogy that takes him all the way back to Adam and Eve, reminding us that he's actually God's son who will perfectly obey, not doubt God's goodness and run away, but he's God's son who will actually defeat the snake and crush his head. Now, John takes his gospel all the way back to like eternity past, prehistory. Talks about the son of God with the father and the spirit who spoke all things into existence, who created the very universe. But Mark, he begins his good news in a unique way. Mark begins by looking at a promise, a holy promise, a prophecy from the prophet Isaiah. So we're going to begin by looking at where Mark begins, this, this promise, and that's our first point. We're going to see two things today. I want us, as we begin to study the book of Mark, Look at the significance of where he begins because there's a deep, important message. He starts with a promise. He also starts with a place. We're going to look at each one of those things. So let's look at the promise first. Mark begins with an important promise. Let me read it again. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send a messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. I was thinking this week about just how important and impactful people um, always come with, with an announcement, right? Probably has something to do with COVID, but I'm getting a, a lot, it seems like, of baby announcements now, nowadays. Um, and, you know, those are important, impactful little people to the families and friends. It's like these, these little guys and gals are on, on the way, and that's super fun. Or, like, you know, to put a total different spin on it, I watched some fights last night with my friend Brett, and each one of those fighters comes, and when they come to the ring, they, they're about to endeavor on something that's, that's really hard, and they get an announcement, right? 
right? They're introduced. And, and think about it politically in our nation. Like our president, he, when he walks in the room, often there's a band there just to say he's there. You know, he's, he gets a marching band and hail to the chief just to say the guy has walked in. Hail to the chief, right? Jesus Christ is the most impactful, important person in history. He is announced. When he was a baby, he got a choir of angels, like proclaiming he was showing up. He's about to step into a fight right here as the gospel begins, and he gets an announcement. He's not just a president. He's the king of kings. You bet he comes announced. And so Mark begins by going back. He's about to move forward by looking back to prophecy and the Old Testament and, and saying, hey, God made a promise about Jesus He made lots of promises about Jesus, but one of those promises is that he was going to be announced upon his arrival. The beginning of this good news of of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, it's going to be proclaimed, and that promise is going to be answered in a really important way. And so Mark begins by going back to prophecy in the Old Testament. And there was a time in my life and, and there might be a place in, in uh, your life today where the idea of God speaking through people is amazing. Maybe it seems too amazing, right? One of, one of my friends who isn't a Christian, he, uh, he's fond of saying like, well, the Bible is just a book written by men. And the Bible actually really embraces that. Yes, it is a book written by men, but not just written by men. Inspired by this Holy Spirit, it it is written, the very word of God, God speaking through men, speaking through people. And that actually points to the love and the character of God, that he's including people he loves in in his purposes. And the Bible makes that claim plainly. A a theologian, Timothy Ward, he says this, that the Old Testament assumes that God can and does speak in and through human words in such a way that those words can truly be said to be his. And that's a big claim, and, and we might at times find that hard to believe, but it's a claim worth exploring, right? And so I think we should look a minute at this book of Isaiah in this prophet of Isaiah that, that Mark begins with. And he's a significant prophet in the history of God's people. He writes a significant book that talks so much about Jesus that, that many scholars call it the fifth gospel, right? That, that so much of his prophecies about this coming king, this coming Messiah. And it's a fascinating book. And it's a book that I particularly have some heartstrings tied to because I, I love history. And he speaks a lot about history and world events. Isaiah, he's just, he lived 8th century B.C., and, and this is how his book begins. He's got 66 chapters of, of the Word of God, and he begins with, with this. It says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which was concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And so it's saying, hey, his ministry as a prophet spanned the lifetime of these four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, and Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Now, it's, uh, it's pretty cool that I happened to come across, even just a few months ago, um, an article that made some national news, and I want to I show you uh, the content of, of that national news. Um, there's, a, there's a picture 
Uh, these are called uh, a bulla, or they're, they're signets or seals from antiquity. And these two, in particular, were dug up, and they were dug up unearthed through an archaeological dig at the foot of the southern wall of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem by a, a doctor named Eliot uh, Mazar and her team. They were um, found, one of them was found in 2009, one of them found in 2015. They were both announced um, in, in, in just this last year. But according to uh, Dr. Mazar, she said that this one that's broken on the right, these are, by the way, these are a centimeter. Um, they're tiny. They're big here on the screen, but they're, they're little in real life. Um, but the one on the right reads Isaiah the prophet. And the one on the left <laughs> reads Hezekiah son of Ahaz, king of Judah. And what's cool is these were found about you know, within 10 feet of each other at the same level of soil. So the, 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 you know, she, Dr. Mazar, is saying, hey, these, these are from actually the same period of time. They were found in the same place, and they date back to the same time, which is the 8th century, where the Bible says that Isaiah lived and spoke as a prophet. And here we have Two artifacts showing two men writing and working close at the same time where the Bible says 2,700 years ago. The National Geographic, uh, an article, they write this. If the interpretation of, of Dr. Mazar of the, of the lettering on these 2,700-year-old seals are correct, it would be the first reference to Isaiah outside of the Bible. The Hebrew prophet is described as a counselor to the Judean king Hezekiah who ruled in the late 8th century to the early 7th century B.C. I just think that's fun and, and cool, and it's, a, you know, it's just a, a, should come as no surprise to us who know the power and, and the truth of the word of God. And, and you see that Isaiah, he, he has just um, a book in his word that is so impactful that it should stop us in our tracks, and it should mean a, a great deal to us, whether we're Christians today or whether we're just exploring Christianity. For example, Isaiah uh, 13, verse 17, Isaiah writes, Behold, I'm stirring up the meads against them. I have no regard for silver. Who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold? Behold, I'm stirring. This is God speaking through Isaiah, and he's saying 700 years before Jesus is born, 700 B.C., hey, he's, he's proclaiming judgment on a, a world force, called Babylon, and he's saying, hey, the Medes are going to be stirred up against you, and you're not going to be able to bribe them. There's nothing you're going to be able to do about it. What's interesting is when this was written, you know, people knew about the Medes, but they were no world power. Babylon was an absolute force to be reckoned with, but the Medes were just like not significant, not world players. It would be like somebody today saying Peru is going to conquer the United States, and we'd all say, I don't think so. I don't see how that would possibly happen. And yet what does happen and what plays out in history is that in 539, so over 150 years later, there's this guy that some of us might be familiar with called Cyrus the Great, and he actually unites Medes and Persians. His mom was a Mede, his dad was a Persian. He brings them together, and they do just what Isaiah proclaimed they would do. And Isaiah is saying, hey, that's an act of judgment against this people that have been oppressing the Babylonians, my people. You can read about it in the book of Daniel, how it plays out. But it should strike us that here, recorded in history, a man that lived in 700 B.C. 
wrote in detail, and actually in Isaiah 44 and 45, names Cyrus, like literally names him 150 years plus before he's ever going to walk the face of the earth and, and do something that nobody could have ever foreseen happening. It's the very word of God. God who knows all things, speaking in grace through a man to share truth with his people about what he's going to do. But what's really beautiful about Isaiah is that more than he writes about nations rising and falling, he writes about a king who is coming. He writes about a savior and what he will be like. He writes in Isaiah 7, 14, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and we will call his name Emmanuel. We know that means God with us. He writes about, about the ministry of this Savior and this King that will come. He writes about how it won't just include Israelites, it will include all people, that the nations will be drawn to him. In Isaiah 11.10, he says, In that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. My mind goes to John 12, after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, how the Pharisees are fr so frustrated, saying, now there are some Greeks, and they're coming to worship at the festival, and, and they want to see him. He's drawing everybody to him. Isaiah prophesied in detail how Jesus would work miracles in Isaiah 35. Isaiah writes, then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue will shout for joy. In an extraordinary way. I would just invite you for just a little bit of, of glorious homework. Just go home and read Isaiah 52, 53, those chapters, and just be impacted by 700 years before the event happened, how it reads like an eyewitness event of the crucifixion of Christ Jesus. And the glorious but horrible road he's going to walk in his passion, in his, in his death, his crucifixion. So we, we look at this Old Testament prophecy, this, this prophet, and that's where Mark begins. He says, before we're going to move forward in the story, I want to go back to promises God has made. And I think that's significant to us in, in a few ways, even in this moment, for obvious reasons, but, but also deep personal reasons, meaning that like we all just a little while ago sang a song, great is your faithfulness, right? I put my faith in Jesus, my anchor to the ground. He's my hope, a sure foundation. He, he never lets me down. And it's sometimes hard for us to sing that song when we're thinking about our own disappointments, our expectations. Hey, God, I wanted this and you didn't come through for me. I know sometimes in singing songs like that, that's where my heart goes. But when we look at the stories like this and moments like this in Scripture and where Mark is taking our heart, he's saying, look, God has made promises. He said some things that he is going to do and he keeps those promises. And that's way better news than, hey, God, you always do what I want. It's better news that God always does what he says he will do, that he's faithful. That's how he never lets us down. And so as we look at these Old Testament prophecies, and there's something that's far cooler than the fact that, hey, God said that one obscure nation was going to rise up and take another out 150 years later, and that would be his judgment. That's, you know, really 
extraordinary. But what's more extraordinary is that he's saying, hey, look, a Savior is going to come, and he's going to be pronounced. And I'm going to say in detail what he's going to be like. And 700 years later, that man shows up on the scene, and, and to a T, he fulfills all these prophecies. And so what strikes our heart in that, what should, is that, hey, God is a God who keeps his promises, Because we're believing some things today about promises he's made. We're believing that he is going to really and has really forgiven us of our sin. That he's really with us. That the spirit indwells in us as we've come to be in him. That our future and our hope is to be with him. Either he's going to come back and bring heaven with him. Or death has been defeated and, and we get to experience the glory of heaven in this next life. We believe that he can heal our broken hearts. We believe that there's no power that can separate his love from us. These are promises that we believe. And and Mark is beginning by saying, hey, God keeps his promises. And that promise is a reality in a very intentional and specific place. That's the second thing we need to look at. Mark begins in an important place. Let me read, picking up in verse 4. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sin. And now John was was clothed with camel's hair and he wore a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, after me, after me comes he who is mightier than I the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So this is an unexpected place. John is is beginning to proclaim the coming of, of what Mark began with. This is good news, great joy of a Messiah, a Savior, the very Son of God. And yet it's not playing out where I think it would or probably where you think it would. It's not happening in the midst of a temple. It's not happening in a palace. It's happening on the fringes out in the wilderness. It's not populated. It's not an important place. The beginning is happening in the wilderness. And the wilderness is a really important place and theme all through the Old Testament. If you begin just reading in Genesis, you're going to begin eventually to be struck by stories again and again about people finding themselves in the wilderness. The first I can think of is this woman uh, and mother, Hagar, and her son, Ishmael. They're they're abandoned in a real way, isolated, exposed, and she thinks they're both going to die, and they're in this place of desperation, and Scripture describes that place they find themselves as the wilderness, or a heartbreaking moment in Genesis towards the end, Genesis 37, it's a, it's a story we're probably familiar with many of us, Joseph, right? And he's got this really awesome coat, and his brothers are jealous, and yet they, they betray him, and they fake his death to his father, and they, they betray him by throwing him down into a pit and selling him to slavery, and scripture, selling him into slavery, and scripture says that betrayal happened where? Out in the wilderness, Or Moses, this prince of Egypt who has to flee Egypt. He finds himself in obscurity, probably wrestling with purposelessness in Exodus 3. And he's out as a shepherd watching his father-in-law's flock. And that happens in the wilderness. 
or God's people, because of their lack of faith, find themselves wandering in the wilderness, and it's there they face temptation in deep ways. David is under attack from a mad king driven by his jealousy in Saul, and so he retreats where, Scripture tells us in in 1 Samuel, to the wilderness. Elijah, right, under attack from Jezebel. He's where in 1 Kings 19? In his deep loneliness and depression, he is alone in the wilderness, and it goes on and on. But this is what's beautiful. If you know any of those stories and and the rest of them, it's actually in the wilderness that God meets each one of these people and more in their pain. Moses is, yes, alone, but it's there in his solitude where he hears the call of God. God's people are, are wandering, but isn't he providing for them daily Bread from heaven, miraculously water from a, wa- uh, from a rock, grace of the meat of quail. He's leading them by cloud by day and fire by night. David was strengthened. Elijah was comforted that the wilderness is a place God speaks, God draws near, God rescues. And on a deep level, the wilderness is just a picture that we find ourselves in our own life And the Bible describes the world as as wilderness because of sin. At the very beginning, our first mom and dad, Adam and Eve, they're they're planted in a garden oasis. It is nothing like a desert or wilderness, but it is a beautiful garden, and life is furious. It thrives in every way, yet in their doubt and in their rejection and in their rebellion and mistrust from God, they are driven out of that oasis that is the Garden of Eden, east of Eden, into a wilderness that's full of thorns and thistles. It's a wasteland of pain and dust, and it's not a place of life anymore, but because of their sin, it is now a wilderness of death. Death and wilderness are connected. That's not the end of the story, though, because something happens as Scripture continues to unfold, where God keeps on bringing up the wilderness, and He's making promises as what He will do and His heart towards people that find themselves in these barren places. And it's a metaphor that's repeated in the heart and the words of God that one day he would do a work in this barren land. Again, Isaiah 32, Isaiah writes, first, it's bad news. He says, beat your breast for the pleasant fields, for the fruit of the vine, for the soil of my people growing up in thorns and briars. Yes, for all the joyous houses, the exultant city, for the palaces forsaken, the populous city deserted, the hill and the watchtower will be, become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. What Isaiah is saying here is that, hey, what places that once teemed with life that flourished because of sin, it's made not life better, not more beautiful, not more fulfilling, but sin has turned places of life into places of death, places of flourishing into a wilderness and a wasteland. And don't we all know that in our life, right? That we think that sin is going to bring deep life and something rich, but the minute that that argument is over and you say those things that you think are going to make you feel good, you realize that you've brought wasteland into a marriage. Or you think something that you're going to look at online that's going to satisfy a a lust and a loneliness in you that in the moment it feels good, but after it's over, there's just more desolation and you're even more dry than you were before. 
Or you put your hope in just if I can get the bank account to that number and it gets to that number, you realize I'm still dry and this still isn't satisfying me. And we, we look at things that were maybe created to, to be gifts from God, but we take them out of the context that they're in and we worship them and we live out this idolatry that leaves us once again further lost in a wilderness. That's what Isaiah is saying here. That you beat your chest, you mourn for these pleasant fields, you long for them. How can we get out of this wasteland? And he goes on to say, picking up in verse 15, Isaiah 32, what changes until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the, the fruitful field is deemed a forest, then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in the fruitful field and the effect of the righteousness will be peace and the result of the righteousness will be quietness and trust forever and my people will abide in, in a peaceful habitation in secure dwellings and in quiet resting places." Isaiah is saying, hey, yeah, sin brings devastation and brings about wilderness, but God is going to pour out his spirit, and in that desolation, he's going to bring about a new paradise. The spirit of God will undo this, this wasteland, this devastation, and he's going to bring about fruit of, of forest and justice and righteousness and quietness and trust and peace and rest forever. And again in Isaiah 44 and 51 and all throughout Scripture, this theme keeps on coming back where the prophets of God are proclaiming, hey, there is a desolation, but into that desolation there's going to come life. There is a wilderness, but there's a promise that we're making. This is the very word of God that in the wilderness you find yourself in, God is going to come by the power of the Spirit and meet you and bring life again. And after Malachi, this last prophet of the Old Testament, there's silence. There's a long silence, 400 plus years of silence. And, and people begin to ask, hey, has God forgotten us? Is he going to keep his word? Will the spirit be poured out? Can God indeed take the wilderness and the wasteland we find ourselves in? And can he bring life once again like he promised? And it's in that place, into the silence, that a promise is kept and a voice speaks and it's a wild man <laughs> standing in a wild place and he's got an amazing message. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. And I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And, and John the Baptist, in a wild place, in a desolate place, proclaims the coming of the one who will bring an end to our wilderness. And throughout the Gospel of Mark, we see Jesus, anointed by the Spirit of God, going into to the wilderness, going into the wild places of, of people's lives, into their sin, into their disease, into their darkness and death. And in an in amazing, in a fast-paced, a, a furious way, he is bringing life again. And the sick are healed, and the oppressed are freed, and the hopeless and the shamed are actually brought in community and honored, and their heads are lifted, and the dead are raised. The very lost are found. 
And then the one who brings all this life into these desolate places, what happens to him? At the climax of this book, we'll see that on his head is beaten in a crown of thorns, right? He becomes king of the wilderness. And he will bear the curse on the cross. And and on the cross, in, in the most extreme way, he experiences a barren wilderness, a desolation. For the first time, the Son of God separated from the Father and the Spirit. He's literally being crucified outside of the city in a wasteland, a dump. A place of darkness, a place of death. And in that, in that dark place of wilderness, he's identifying with our pain, with our sin. And he's saying, every desolation that has touched you in love, I am taking that on myself. And in three days, he rises again saying, hey, I've defeated, I've laid waste to that wasteland, and in me now fully you have life. I've wiped away your wilderness so that in me you can get back to the flourishing garden that you were meant to live, life with God, life in God, abundant life. He himself is the new beginning. So this has like deep personal meaning for us, right? Who Jesus is and what he's done to the to wildernesses of our own life. When we receive him, he enters into our life. And that spirit brings about new life to these places. It happens just immediately in beautiful ways as in our standing before God that we're no longer dead or alive. And then through sanctification, he continues to grow us like a, like a garden he's working in to be, to be uh, bearing fruit, to look more like him as we walk with him closely and the spirit works in us. And it's our future and our hope is that, that one day that work will be finished in him. And it also has like profound cosmic implications that when we look at the world and all its brokenness, the promise that is true in Christ Jesus is that, that he is making all things new and one day he will return and all that wilderness will be wiped away and creation and new heavens and a new earth will once again be a garden. And so I think it's good for us as we end to just take a moment and invite the Spirit of God in our own lives in a personal way to just say, hey, Spirit, would you help me see the wilderness in my life? Maybe it's a place of, of sin that the Spirit's going to call you to repent of. Maybe it's a hurt that you're carrying because somebody sinned against you. Maybe it's a place that you feel like you're being attacked by the enemy and, and forces of darkness. Or maybe it's just a weakness that you're really aware of, that you just want to celebrate the strength of God. Whatever it may be, just invite the Holy Spirit to, to hold up before you, hey, where, where do I have dry places, desert places, wild places of waste, lifeless places, Jesus, that you long to bring life by the power of the Spirit? Let's pray that God meets us in those places today. Let's stand and pray. Father, we ask for forgiveness for trying to find life apart from you. We need your help, Spirit. Help us pray for and hope for the day when you make all things new. And now, help us desire more than anything you, life giver, author of life. 
So as, as we begin this book, this study of the gospel together, we, we pray that we would remember and be impacted again and again by the fact that you are faithful, God. You keep your promises and you are present, God, in the worst places. That there's no lost cause. There's nobody beyond the scope or out of the reach of what you can do. Nothing is impossible for you. There's no sin. There's no hurt. All things are possible for you. You are the one who raises the dead. So in faith, we ask you to move today in our lives, in the life of this city. We pray this, Jesus, in your name and God's people said, amen.